At AJ Products, we're dedicated to delivering intelligent solutions tailored for your business needs. Specializing in warehouse and project planning, we bring efficiency and sustainability to the forefront. To elevate your business, visit ajproducts.ie. After 40 years of brutal conflict, the Taliban have now gained complete control over Afghanistan, making it officially the most dangerous country on planet Earth. And I'm going to fly there. Yeah, sounds like a good idea if you ask me. For a very small number of travellers, heading to Afghanistan for an adventure might seem like a good idea. But when it comes to visiting this Middle Eastern nation, the official advice from the Department of Foreign Affairs is simple. Do not travel. Afghans are thronging to Kabul's airport desperate to get on planes and leave the country at any cost. Women have been forced out of the workplace and the Taliban says this is only temporary but Afghan women fear for their livelihoods and in some instances their lives. Travel throughout Afghanistan is extremely dangerous, says the department. Any person who does visit the country should exercise extreme caution. But some tourists have decided it's worth the risk. Next up, we're heading to Kandahar, which is the Taliban headquarters. And there are some international tour companies offering trips to the region. They say it'll bring a much-needed boost to the economy and challenge people's perceptions of the country. What I want to do is get people to see that things are different in Afghanistan now. There is life and the Afghans are proud that they're, uh, you know, very, very welcoming. They're very, very happy that for the first time in nearly 40 years, foreigners want to come and visit them. Here's Hannah McCarthy, an Irish freelance reporter covering the Middle East and Afghanistan. I think they they recognise that tourism can bring... Uh, you know, money to Afghan communities. And I think there is this idea that foreign tourism could be an avenue for, you know, new revenue to um, flow into Afghanistan. This is In the News from the Irish Times. I'm Sarah Chapalak. Today, what is it like to visit the most dangerous country in the world? Hannah, you've been reporting from the Middle East for a number of years now. Have you been to Afghanistan at all recently? When was the last time you were there? I was there in 2021. So I went kind of after uh, the Taliban returned. NGOs were still operating there. There was a kind of sense of people waiting to see exactly what the Taliban were like. Uh, The Taliban were still, you know, taking interviews with foreign press they were trying to, I guess, you know, show that they were perhaps different from uh, the previous Taliban regime that had struck a very isolationist approach. And I'd say there was maybe kind of a year where journalists were still kind of able to be based there without too much harassment. Uh, but I'd say after the year, there was, you know, I'd say so 2022, there was quite a sharp change in their approach to uh, journalists. The vast majority of the people I knew there have had to leave. They've had their visas rejected or it was simply, you know, wasn't possible to keep working there because of the harassment or the kind of monitoring that the Taliban were requiring. But yet, Hannah, you have now reported for the Irish Times that there are some tourists heading to Afghanistan for a holiday. What is the Taliban itself saying about tourism in Afghanistan? Is it welcoming tourists? And did it ever welcome tourists before when it when it was in control in the 1990s? They're definitely keen to show... Uh, that they are, you know, 
a kind of palatable place for foreign tourists to visit. Uh, and again, Afghanistan has a huge amount of culture and history. Um, they have, you know, many, you know, um, sites, you know, dating from, you know, the medieval period that have been incredibly well preserved. Uh, and again, one city in particular, uh, Harash, uh, you know, has a remarkable old city with, you know, an incredibly well preserved citadel. Before the Taliban returned, that, uh, that city was in the process of getting a UNESCO heritage status. Uh, this means it would have gotten, you know, some extra funding and support from the UN. And I think um, Afghanistan or or the Taliban government there is keen to show that uh, it's different from the last Taliban regime, which had taken quite a, I guess, a nihilistic approach to maintaining some of its uh, cultural sites. It famously blew up two standing Buddhas uh, in Bamiyan, which is kind of this famous uh, valley in the Hindu Kush, where there was once a kind of thriving Buddhist community. Uh, so I think they're keen again to show that, you know, they can uh, protect their cultural sites and that, you know, there should be UN funding. I think they, they recognize that tourism can bring, uh, you know, money to Afghan communities. Um, and I think there is this idea that foreign tourism could be an avenue for, you know, new revenue to, um, flow into Afghanistan. At the same time, you know, speaking with some kind of, you know, local hotel owners, I think there's, a little bit of suspicion around, you know, how credible those statements are and whether they're really happy for tourists to, you know, roam around Afghanistan. And I think speaking to uh, some of the people who've organized tour groups, you know, I think there's a very prescribed route that they expect tourists to take. They don't expect people to wander off by themselves. And they do have quite an extensive uh, intelligence or surveillance network where, you know, some people might, you know, view it as, oh, the local Taliban leader is checking in on me and, you know, they're checking that I'm okay. On the other hand, they absolutely want to know where every single foreign tourist is, uh, you know, where they are. Uh, and it's not just, a, you know, a safety precaution to check that they're okay. It's to know exactly where they are. You spoke to an Irish man, Tomás McIntyre, who cycled through Afghanistan late last year. What did he tell you about his experience? Sure. So Tomás uh, was on this kind of, you know, amazing kind of multi-country uh, cycling trip where he'd started in India. Uh, he'd cycled to Pakistan and he hadn't been planning to go to Afghanistan. But I think while he started uh, his trip, he obviously got talking with other travelers uh, who said, you know, Afghanistan is you know a possible option. It's straightforward to get a visa. And, you know, we we would recommend that, you, you know, try it if you're interested so he cycled, you know, from Peshawar, which is this kind of Western city in Pakistan. Uh, he crossed over the land crossing between Pakistan and Afghanistan. And again, he, he described, you know, all the Afghans who had, who were kind of waiting at the land border after being kind of, you know, told to leave Pakistan in recent months. Uh, you know, Tomas described, you know, a very heavy handed approach by Pakistani. Uh, security guards, you know, on the Pakistani side of the border. But for him, you know, obviously he's, you know, a, a Western traveler. So he had a, you know, Pakistani police escort to the border. I think they were so intrigued by the idea, you know, of someone, you know, cycling through Turkum, crossing into Afghanistan. And again, you know, he cycled, you know, across Afghanistan for a month, uh, which I think is a really, you know, it's a remarkable trip to do. And I think, you know, for anyone who's into kind of Irish travel riding. I'm sure many people will uh, recall Dervla Murphy's route where she kind of cycled from uh, Belgium uh, to India in 1961. And, you know, she has these descriptions of life in Afghanistan then and, and kind of receiving the kind of, you know, typical Afghan 
hospitality where, you know, they, they have to basically welcome you as a guest. And it's amazing to see, you know, they may have very little, but they will offer it to, you know, a traveler who has come, come onto their land. And it's something Tomas talked about, you know, he talked about, you know, traveling through Afghanistan and the fact that, you know, people wouldn't allow him to pay for things. And, you know, anywhere he went, people would, you know, find him a bed and help him uh, on his way. While the climate for, for example, journalists uh, is is a lot trickier, uh, the fact that there is no longer, you know, an active Taliban insurgency means that it is easier for tour groups to move around the country. There's not the same level of car bombs uh, or active conflict there was under the Taliban. At the same time, poverty has escalated since then. Uh, so again, it's not somewhere that I think the DFA would want, uh, you know, Irish people to be uh, traveling to on a whim. Anna, you also spoke with a man called Joe Sheffer. Joe is the founder of a travel company called Safariat, which offers trips to the Helmand province in Afghanistan for British tourists. And he actually markets the trips on his company's website as, quote, a long weekend in Afghanistan. Now, Sheffer is a former journalist who has reported from the Middle East. So where did this idea of bringing tourists to a country run by the Taliban, a place that millions of people have fled from in recent years, where did that idea come from? Um, so Joe had spent, um, had, had done a few reporting trips to Afghanistan, you know, where he often worked as a, a cameraman. Uh, and actually, you know, I spoke to him when he was kind of working in Israel, Palestine, uh, where he was working uh, for CNN uh, recently. So we had a conversation about, you know, how his tour company, Sarafat, had, had been going. The idea of Safariat was to challenge narratives. I've worked as a journalist and particularly in television journalists now for over a decade uh, both in the Middle East and Afghanistan, and consistently felt that not only um, did my stories, not only do, often didn't do justice um, to um, what we were trying to tell, but in, in, in some ways were, were dishonest, and, and not because journalists are fundamentally dishonest, but because these stories are complex, and, and places like Afghanistan are incredibly complex. Uh, it, it's quite hard to see the reality without having your feet on the ground. You know, he spoke about, you know, how bringing people to Afghanistan would be one of the best ways to show the complexity of, you know, the country. The fact that, you know, one province is not the same as the other, that, you know, there is, you know, this cultural life there. And he also um, brought, uh, in particular, British tourists to Helmand. And I mean, I think this was an interesting idea. You know, Helmand was where a lot of British uh, soldiers were based. Uh, It's where a lot of British casualties happened as well. And, you know, he talked about, you know, kind of both showing British tourists who only would have read about these places um, from newspapers, you know, what this actually was like, that, you know, there are communities there. And he also kind of spoke about, you know, the benefit of, you know, Afghanis in this community, you know, seeing British people that aren't soldiers who are coming to like learn about their culture uh, and experience their culture and their food and their lifestyle. But what I want to do is get people to see that things are different in Afghanistan now. Um, there is life. Um, obviously, you know, the lives of women uh, and some minorities are particularly hard, but the, there is still life. And the Afghans are proud that they're, uh, you know, very, very welcoming. That They're delighted uh, to welcome foreigners. They're, they're very, very happy that for the first time in nearly 40 years, um, that foreigners want to come and visit them. It's one thing to visit 
Afghanistan as a man, but but what would happen if I, for example, decided to go on a trip to Afghanistan with Joe Sheffer's company as a woman? I, I think, yeah, I think it's this is an interesting point. I do think if you go to Afghanistan and you present as a, a Western woman, you will not be treated the same way as an Afghani woman. Uh, there will be kind of a different standard basically applied to you. I think um, Lise Doucette, the BBC correspondent, I think she kind of described, you know, Western women in Afghanistan as almost like a third, uh, a third sex because, you know, you are not treated in the same way as an Afghani woman and you are given much more freedom. Foreign women in Afghanistan uh, are treated a little bit like an alien species by the Taliban. And what that means uh, is that the Taliban don't really want to engage with them as long as they wear a loose hijab or headscarf, uh, they get a pass. So there's a degree of, I suppose, what we would call white privilege, uh, which allows women uh, to uh, take in Afghanistan, much like uh, our male guests. But again, it varies a lot depending on the provinces. I think you could end up in one place that's fairly permissible and then another place where you're told you need to go home. When I was in Afghanistan, um, you know, I was presented as you know, a Western journalist. I was treated you know, very differently. And then I remember I was walking around Kabul in some situations where, you know, I obviously presented as an Afghan woman and I was shouted at by the Taliban. They said my um, coat wasn't long enough. And again, I, I have a friend who is an Iranian uh, photographer who regularly goes to Afghanistan for work. Uh, and she says she's stopped, you know, walking around at all uh, on trips since she's gone back because of the level har- of harassment, the fact that, you know, women will be kind of shouted at and the fact is, look, you probably will be fine if you go to a shop to buy some goods and you will probably make it back to your house. But then you start having an issue where the shopkeeper doesn't want to get in trouble. So even if you make it to the shopkeeper without the Taliban seeing, the shopkeeper might not want to serve you. And slowly, you know, your your public space and your living space become, shrinks and becomes smaller and smaller. And what we're seeing is, you know, I guess a kind of slow retraction of the freedom that many you know, Afghan women, you know, mostly living in you know, bigger cities like Kabul or Herat had uh, before the Taliban return. Coming up, what will more tourists mean for some of Afghanistan's poorest regions? AJ Products, we're dedicated to delivering intelligent solutions tailored exclusively for your business needs. Spanning offices, warehouses, industries, workshops, schools and public spaces. Specialising in warehouse and project planning, we bring efficiency and sustainability to the forefront. Our offerings include versatile storage solutions and comprehensive office project design and implementation. With over 45 years of experience, we stand as your trusted partner in smart B2B solutions. To explore all we have to offer, visit ajproducts.ie and elevate your business with AJ Products. Uh, Joe Sheffer argues that his travel company isn't just about money, that he wants to build sustainable livelihoods in, in Helmand through tourism. How possible is that, Hannah, when people are literally going hungry across Afghanistan? And and how much money that people spend on these trips actually goes into the pockets of the Afghan people? Sure. So um, in, you know, for example, Helmand, 
Joe has organized homestays uh, for some of the tourists. Uh, and, you know, he, he was explaining that some of the, the homes there would be or the households would be so poor that it just it wouldn't be possible for some of the tourists to stay there. There just isn't the space there. So, you know, he he kind of has reached out to some of the wealthier members of the community, you know, farmers, people who have land and livestock. And he says the average salary for, for those kind of uh, households is about eleven hundred dollars a year, just to give people an idea of, of the amounts we're talking about. So uh, if, you know, he arranges a homestay and you know, for, for them to go out and buy, you know, meat and food uh, for the visiting party, that would be about $150 he would give to that family. So $150 would not be a huge amount in Ireland uh, to organize, you know, food for a, a tour group. But that's, you know, over over a month's salary for this household. Uh, and again, that's just to really underscore the level of poverty in Afghanistan it's not that, you know, people have these amazing coping mechanisms. People eat less than they should. Girls in particular eat last and they eat less than the rest of the family members. The majority of, you know, children that are admitted to feeding programs are girls. But at the same time, you know, those small amounts of money do have a meaningful impact for those households. At the same time, there's obviously, you know, issues around how you manage, you know, that kind of windfall for some households how you manage it. And again, the number of tour groups in Afghanistan is fairly small. So it's not kind of this big, it's not a big issue for many communities because there are simply no tourists. But it is, you know, an interesting example of how sustainable tourism could work and how you can inject cash into, you know, smaller communities rather than just into, you know, for example, hotels. And so what we hope to do is very slowly play a small part on on building sustainable livelihoods in Afghanistan. Our our programme of homestays, even simple investments such as, you know, taking taking tourists for for lunch in a village makes a huge, huge difference in cash terms uh, to people who uh, over the last three, four years and, and more generally have been incredibly, incredibly poor. And like I always say, I think the main problem in Afghanistan is always misunderstood. Uh, Afghanistan's main problem isn't violence, it's poverty. Uh, Afghans can cope with violence, they, they've coped with it for God knows how long. Um, and, and what Afghans need is a sustainable way to live uh, and to be able to sort of build themselves uh, back up. In your research, did you find any other tour companies or hotel groups who are bringing international tourists to Afghanistan? And as someone who has spent time in Afghanistan yourself, do you think this tourism market is viable? So there are a couple of different tour operators uh, who are doing tours to Afghanistan, also local Afghan tour operators who organize tours within Afghanistan. And there are also, I would say, kind of tour operators who have a kind of adventure focus and would be targeting a tourist with more of a, a risk appetite. And I guess, you know, with the kind of proliferation of mass tourism with, you know, Instagram, you know, showcasing everyone's holidays. I think there is a a kind of subgroup of tourists who, you know, are looking for something different, who, you know, like the idea of going somewhere riskier that less people have gone. It, it's hard, again, to recommend Afghanistan as a tour uh, location. There is a real risk that people could be detained. You know, I know uh, one other uh, Irish um, photographer who was detained by the Taliban for several days. That is a, a genuine risk. Uh, ISIS still operates in Afghanistan and their main targets so far have been uh, Hazaras and you know members of the Shia minority and the Taliban itself. Uh, so you know if you are going to crowded markets, particularly in Shia areas, 
there is a genuine risk that you you could end up involved in a a, a bomb attack. At the same time, that risk is actually probably lower than it was before the Taliban withdrawal when there was active conflict across the country. And again, also, obviously, you know, I talk about Afghanistan more from the perspective as a journalist, as someone who's gone there uh, for journalism. And I think there is an issue and maybe an ethical issue in, in terms of tourism now, the fact that many tourists also, you know, have large followings. And, you know, there's also this kind of hybrid of, you know, YouTubers. Are they kind of going with a journalistic lens or are they going with a a tourism lens. And I think the issue from my point of view is that there are people who are going and, you know, look, they're on holidays, but they might have huge followers. And obviously they're going to talk about things in a positive lens. They're not necessarily going to be skeptical of everything the local Taliban uh, commander is saying. And again, the Taliban, you know, are happy to be pleasant to tourists that they think will be only there for a week or two. Sometimes I think people present things uh, in a light that isn't really representative of the experience for the vast majority uh, of Afghans, particularly women. And I think that is an issue at times in terms of, you know, how YouTubers have presented Afghanistan. You mentioned there about the situation for women in Afghanistan. Women's rights and freedoms have been severely restricted since the Taliban takeover in 2021. The Taliban very quickly introduced a ban in 2021 on girls attending school beyond the sixth grade. This makes Afghanistan the only country in the world with restrictions on female education and women are also banned from most jobs. They cannot visit many public places including parks and gyms and they often have to fully cover up their faces in public. So can you talk to me about a bit about the impact that this ban, particularly around education, has had on the lives of women and girls since 2021. So there is a ban on uh, girls, you know, progressing beyond uh, about the age of kind of 12 um, in education in Afghanistan. Uh, so what this means is that they cannot get a high school diploma, which means they cannot then progress to third level education. In some cases, they haven't actually banned women from certain college courses, but if they don't have their high school diploma, they cannot actually attend university. Uh, what we then have an issue is that there's actually private education centers where women are, and girls are still allowed to go. So they might still be learning. They might still be learning English or different skills, but they can't get, you know, a certificate that would allow them to, you know, become midwives or doctors uh, or teachers. So what we're seeing is, you know, this kind of, we have this kind of, I guess, interim period where there are still, you know, some female doctors. There are still, you know, some midwives. Um, but again, over the years, if this situation isn't rectified, we are going to see, you know, a dramatic decrease in the number of, you know, female teachers who can teach girls, which is one of the stipulations of the Taliban. We're going to see a decrease in the number of female doctors who can treat female patients uh, because then that is one of the stipulations of the Taliban regime. But at the same time, what we have in Afghanistan is that there isn't one universal ban. Some provinces have been more relaxed in their interpretation of the Taliban decree. Some have been more conservative. Some, for example, you know, demand that, you know, like female doctors would, for example, have a, a male relative with them throughout the whole time at work. Whereas, you know, some NGOs say that, you know, their female staff are able to like move broadly, you know, around for, for their work. Uh, but again, there's always a risk that that could change day to day. So it's quite a psychological impact. 
It's not hard law, but again, the fact that women don't know if this day is the day it's going to change, this day is the day that they're going to, you know, be harassed or physically assaulted or, you know, refuse the chance to go to work. Uh, it's definitely, you know, something that changes uh, people's norms and behaviours over time. Hannah McCarthy, thanks so much for your time today. That's all for today. For more reporting from Afghanistan and the Middle East, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Sarah Pollock. This episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan. In the news, we'll be back tomorrow.